Tous les matins, on essaye de traverser le miroir et de regarder le monde différemment. It is true, I am a woman. Une fois que ce saut est fait, tout devient possible. Hello, I'm Charlotte Kasseragi. Welcome to the podcast of Les Rendez-vous littéraires Rue Cambon, a place where we meet to talk about writing, to talk about books. Let's meet women writers who have just taken their first step, the most decisive, the most difficult in the world of literature. How did their vocation call to them? What are their writing rituals? Who reads them and what do they read? I'm Erica Wagner, and it's my pleasure to introduce Claire Louise Bennett and welcome her to Chanel's podcast of Les Rendezvous Littéraires, Rue Cambon. Claire Louise's debut novel, Checkout 19, is a brilliant, wildly perceptive portrait of the textures of a young woman's life. Its nameless narrator is met at different ages and in different places, but she is always observing the world closely, spinning tales for herself and for the reader and considering the books which play such a role in her life. It is short, just a little over 200 pages, but is rich with sensation, whether we are brushing a hand across a page or considering the texture of an aubergine. In this book, as she writes, words are alive and distinct. They are like organisms. Yes, exactly like organisms, and they are supremely potent. Her protagonist is a voracious reader without care for genre or convention. E.M. Forster gets equal billing with Sidney Sheldon, Annie Ernaud, and Danielle Steele. Books and their stories become characters in themselves as we journey with this young woman from her English school days to her young adulthood. Bennett gorgeously conveys the embers from which every story begins, wrote Naomi Huffman in the New York Times. In 2021, it was shortlisted for the prestigious Goldsmiths Prize in Britain, which rewards innovation in fiction. But she has always been an innovator. Her first book, Pond, published in Britain by Fitzcarraldo, set on a coastal town in Ireland, is constructed from 20 glimpses of a solitary woman's life. Linked stories build a portrait both immersive and distancing. Again, our protagonist is nameless, asking us to question, perhaps, what kind of knowledge is ever really available to us. It was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize in 2016. Claire Louise grew up in Wiltshire and studied literature and drama at the University of Roehampton, before moving to Ireland, where she worked in and studied theatre for several years. Her fiction and essays have appeared in a number of publications, including The White Review, The Stinging Fly, Vogue Italia, and The New York Times Magazine. She also writes about art and is a frequent contributor to Freeze. I'm just delighted to be here with you, Claire Louise. Thank you so much for coming and speaking to us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Erica. So in this first part, we're going to talk about your vocation and how you came to be a writer. Tell us, Claire Louise, a little bit about your 
writing journey, specifically writing prose, because I think you started by thinking that Pond might be something made for the theatre. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'd been studying theatre for quite some time, and I was studying something called post-dramatic theatre. I was doing postgraduate research in that area. It was a very kind of progressive area. I don't know what came of it. It was kind of a bit of a thing in the early 2000s. What does post-dramatic theatre mean for those of us who don't know? It means that it's sort of reflecting on the fact that theatre and drama have become synonymous. And it's saying that theatre has other potentials other than as a place, a site for drama, i.e. a scripted experience. So historically, there would be uh, precedents, I suppose, such as Artaud being an obvious one, Peter Brook to an extent. And what they were trying to do, and what post-dramatic theatre was also trying to do, was reinvigorate and retain the liveness of the performance space. And Artaud was of the opinion, and as was later practitioners in this area, that drama is it's deadly, has a deadliness, because it's already scripted. So you, you have a live space, but what you're installing into it has already been organised and planned and rehearsed. So there's no live element in any of that. There's no chance really. I mean, there might be a blunder, a fluffed line, but that's as close as it gets. And it's interesting to note that the excitement that that kind of causes, you know, that kind of frisson that occurs when somebody does kind of fluff their lines. And and what is that? What does it open up? Or what's that little glimpse that we get of... That's the living thing. The living thing. In a way. Yeah, yeah. The liveness of it, that real... And we, we suddenly in the audience feel present in those moments, which is really, really interesting. So I was really, yeah, I was a field I was very, very interested in, definitely, because what it was looking at was what can a person be on a stage if they're not representing a character? And what can speech on stage represent if uh, not the words of somebody else, the speech of another human being? How can these things function in a kind of a post-dramatic space? So I found that all really just so liberating and quite wild. And um, it's looking at some very interesting work, both kind of contemporary and, and older pieces by those writers I mentioned. And Beckett, obviously, was, yeah. Yeah, so that was what, yeah, that was what I was doing. And I think what drew me to that really was because I felt an affinity towards, I guess, the way that those approaches conceptualized selfhood in a way it made sense to me I'd acted in theater I'd done plays in more uh, conventional sense I'd rehearsed I'd been through that process and it's very interesting and it's very insightful in terms of what it tells you about what people think being a person is and I guess we're still very much depending upon the Stanislavski method to a degree. There's a a huge emphasis on psychology and this notion of how to build a character really, really, really fascinated me. And I became curious about what is it then to be a person and to be a convincing person on a stage. And then when I was writing, I kind of, I guess, transferred those concerns. And so with Pond, 
what I was really um, keen on exploring was not so much creating a character, but creating a presence. I really wanted to do that because it wasn't about the color of their eyes or their attitude about this or the, the gait of their walk and all these other, you know, kind of tropes and, and devices. Yeah. 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 It was about something else. And I kind of thought, well, you know, how is it that we acquire a sense of knowing somebody? It's very, very mysterious. Like somebody could tell you their life story and you might not feel any kind of closeness to them at all, you know, but somebody you've met for maybe just a few minutes, you immediately feel some kind of something. What is, again, what is that kind of something? Each person will receive a character in a different way. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Whether or not they have blue eyes or brown eyes or walk fast or walk slow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the narrator mentions that in Pondwright. And it's and that was based upon an observation that you start reading a description of a character and and I love the way the Victorians go into such detail. But the minute, you know, really a name is mentioned already, there's you know, your your mind isn't building the picture of that person as it's reading all the sentences that are describing them. I mean, it's just there and that's it. Tell me a little bit then about your path to publication. How did your first book come together? And then how did you realize that you needed to write a novel? So so I'd been writing for like a very long time. And I think the difficulty was that I, with form, I had a problem with form, really. And I, I didn't really know how to address it. It was troublesome. So I was writing a lot, um... The stuff I was writing, it, it wasn't poetry and it wasn't short stories particularly. It was just, I don't know. And yet, and there, there was a lot of it and there was more of it and it went on and years went by and there were notebooks were filling up and I was like, oh my God, you know, what, what am I going to do with all this stuff? And I really felt like there was something about it that was of interest, you know, that, that it had something, um that was worth just keeping on with, I suppose, and developing. But I, it took me a long time. It took me a long time to do that. And I didn't do um, like an MA in creative writing. I did an MA in theatre, actually, which was interesting. Um, and I, I find that the things that I kind of did, like the, the PhD, and they gave me certainly some some tools and they brought me into some areas of thinking, like I said, <clears throat> about constructing character and so on and the idea of presence and the notion of atmosphere rather than plot and all those kinds of things. So even though I didn't directly do a creative writing course, there were things that were happening academically that were really helping me orientate and, and get closer to what it was I was trying to do and understand it myself, you know, better and do and then do it better and more and deeper and all the rest of it in, in a more realized way, I suppose, to a degree. So I think then what happened was I would have been in my maybe my mid 30s. And I think I was just sort of floundering around a bit, you know, and I was getting panicky. And I was just like, what, you, what are you going to do? You've got to you just got to do something. You're running out of 
government funded schemes you can go on and you know you've been in education and you know what how where you've got to do something but you've got to get a job or something right you've got to get a vocation or something right and uh, that really freaked me out <laughs> so I was just like I've got to I've just got to do this thing then I've just got to do this writing thing that's that's all I that's all I have that's all I really have and that's I don't want to spend my days doing something I don't want to do because I know that I will be ill if I do that. I'm, that's not going to make me well at all. I'll just crack up. So I, yeah, I guess I just got more focused on it. And I remember actually, like, I think a, a, a kind of a turning point was there's a really fantastic literature festival in Galway, the Kirch Festival. And they had a panel um, quite a few years ago now, over 10 years ago. purpose of the panel discussion was how to get your work published. So anyway, I saw that in the programme and I was like, well, I'm going to buy a ticket for that and I'm going to go, right? Because it can't just be magic, right, that this happens. So yeah, I went along to that and they explained what went on and what they did and stuff. And I thought, all right, then that sounds that sounds reasonable. Do you know, you kind of have a look and see what journals there are and ones that kind of publish work that you feel some sort of affinity to, I suppose, or something. Um, so that's what I did. That's a really nice to me, balanced expression between what I would call, for me anyway, a kind of mystical sense of what you have to do. As you said, I'll become ill if I don't do this. But then there are practical ways mm. that you can approach mm. this task, that you can learn what you need to do to gather your forces and move mm. into the world. I am quite practical. <laughs> There's quite a gap between Pond and Checkout 19. What was happening in there? Oh, well, there was a lot of different things going on, to be honest. So, yeah, Pond was Pond was published. That was fantastic. But for, you know, for a first book, I wasn't a spring chicken. Do you know what I mean? So it was kind of funny. Now, I, I had a kind of a weird time with it because I had been writing, as I said, for a really, really long time in um, a private way, kind of anonymously. And then suddenly, yes, I was identified then in this way and, and my life became very obviously about that. Um, and I, I did struggle with that, actually. It brought a sort of a self-consciousness to what I was doing that was not useful at all. It was really the opposite. I just wrote absolute rubbish for so long and that made me feel um worse obviously because you suddenly felt observed in a way you hadn't before it's hard to explain I just annoyed myself when I was doing it I was like oh look at you writing so that was quite difficult and then of course there were lots of I suppose festivals and different things and it was quite a lot it was really it was quite a lot to sort of um I guess uh just adjust to really and and saying things and, and talking and then realising they're being recorded, but like this. And then thinking, well, what, did I really mean that? And, you know, I, I change my mind actually a lot of the time about things. And But then there's something that's you know, exists now. And, and I wanted to get away from myself or something. So I did. I went to um, Austria. Right? I just ended up there. And it was great because I just needed that anonymity. And... Um, and I did write a bit and it was all right and it was no big deal and 
because writing isn't really that much of a big deal, you know? And I don't, no, I don't do it every day. And I, no, I don't sit down and go, oh, I'm writing now, you know, because I'm a writer. I just, I can go for weeks and weeks and not, and not do any, you know, it has to sort of build up a bit. And I, and I realise that if I, if I force myself to do it, because that's the other thing you see, because there's so much of, and it's, and of course it's wonderful and it's, it's lovely to go to festivals and to listen to podcasts and I love listening to podcasts, but most of the time writers talk about their process and their routine and the way that they get up and they do this and that. And for ages, I just thought, oh my God, I'm so lazy or what's wrong with me? You know, these kinds of things. I don't work. I just don't work that way. I have to, I really think about things for a really, really long time and I read an awful lot. Well, and that's another question that I have for you. One of the wonderful things about Checkout 19 is it's full of other books. Mm. It's full of references to other mm. authors. So it's harder than usual to ask you, who are the authors who have had a great influence on you? Who are the authors that you perhaps turn to again and again are in your personal pantheon? Well... There is a writer, and actually, I don't think I, I gave her her due in Checkout 19. Because invariably, you know, whenever it comes to naming names, you forget. You forget one, and it's usually a really important one. So it's always a bad idea to start. Um, but Jeanette Winterson, certainly, as a, a younger woman, I found extraordinary reading um, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit because it was about a, a girl like me, I suppose, you know, from a not very important family and it was just about her and her mum and and yet it was so delightful and so playful and I loved the richness of it and the language and the imagery and that was very exciting. I really, I remember enjoying that a lot and I read a lot of her books then and then, you know, like you kind of forget, I suppose, for one reason or another but that was, that really did have an impact on me, her work. And I remember at the time being really blown away by it. And it was um, Diaries by Vitold Gombrovich. And they, uh, in that, he talks about how, I guess, he became a writer. Not, he's not, that's not his intention when he's writing them, but you get a sense of how that developed. And I suppose his relationship then to culture and his, I think his disdain for it, maybe. And, you know, the bourgeois kind of Polish, amazing prose, beautifully written. And again, very much its own very much its own thing, very distinct. So any anyone really like I'm kind of uh, drawn to would have a very particular uh, relationship with language, I think. And they're very precise with how they use words and how they choose their words. And which is interesting because they're all quite different. If you look at someone like Clarice Lispector, who I love, someone like Natalia Ginsburg, I mean, they're very, very different writers. Fleury another one, very different again. But they, the three of them have this absolute... This sense of precision. Yeah, well, yeah. And which is something I take from your work. At this juncture, it seems perfect for me to ask you to read it just does. the opening of Checkout yeah, 19. I will. Later on, we often had a book with us. Later on. When we were a bit bigger at last, though still nowhere near as big as the rest of them, we brought over books with us. Oh, loads of books. 
and sat with them there in the grass by the tree. Just one book, in fact. Just one, that's right. Lots of books, one at a time. That's it, one at a time. We didn't very much like tons of books, did we? No, not really, and neither do we now. We like one book. Yes, we like one book now, and we liked one book then. We went to the library, for instance, and we soon lost the habit, didn't we, of taking out lots and lots of books. Yes. Yes. Yes, we did. First of all, of course, we took out all the books we possibly could, which was probably eight books. It's always either six books or eight books or twelve books. Unless it's a special collection of books, of course, in which case it might only be four. And to begin with, we took out as many of them as we could. That's right. We'll take this one and this one and this one, this one and that one too. And so on. Yes. In a pile up on the high counter for Noddy Head to stamp. And we read not one of them all the way through. It was simply impossible. We couldn't get engrossed. No matter what book we had in our hands, we found it simply impossible to refrain from wondering incessantly about what kinds of words exactly were inside the other books. We couldn't help it, could we? We just couldn't stop ourselves from thinking about the other books and the different kinds of words they each contained. And when we picked up one of the other books in order to find out, it was just the same. It really was just the same no matter which book we picked up. As long as there were other books, we thought about the sorts of words they might contain non-stop and were thus precluded from becoming engrossed with the very book we had in our hands. The very book. A silly business. Yes, it was a silly business. Tossing one book down and picking one book up and tossing that to one side and picking up yet another and so on and getting nowhere. Nowhere at all. Over and over again. And we went on like that for quite some time, didn't we? until we realised that just because we were allowed to take out six books, eight books, twelve books, four books, didn't mean, did it, that we had to. Thank you so much. I'm always careful when introducing elements of autobiography into these conversations, but I do want to know if you were the kind of reader that the narrator of Checkout 19 seems to be, a really voracious reader as a girl. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, not only voracious, but sort of haphazard as well. That's sort of, um, I guess the point of it in a, in a way is that sort of gradual discovery that certain books are in some way better than other books or something. And that was certainly the case for me growing up, where I might be reading a Sydney Sheldon novel. And then I think one of the first sort of serious books I got from a library was by Gunter Grass, um, The Tin Drum. I was like, oh, this is a bit different, you know. So there was a, a gradual acquiring then of a sense of something called literature, yeah, which is which is something else that, that's explored in the in the in the novel. You've said previously that you don't really have a routine of writing, but mm. I'm kind of going to ask the question anyway. Something must finally get you to your desk. Mm. What is it that gets you to your desk? Um. Being held captive, I think. <laughs> COVID was very good at that. I just had to stay still. Um, and yeah, I think I think in a way that did sort of help. I mean, there is that advice, isn't there? You know, just show up and all that kind of thing. It was a bit strange because I had been working on something completely different. It was very strange. And I can't really remember how Checkout 19 just suddenly started. Like, it didn't suddenly start. A lot of the material already existed. 
And then there were certain um, images and stories that I'd had in various forms and created more versions of over years. And I knew that, like, for instance, the, the image of the girl, the girl sewing and combusting and the hanging man and the room with the view and being on the uh, bridge with the postcards. Somehow, to me, they were all in the same uh, universe. But I, I couldn't quite figure out why and how they shared that, that space. And I, I tried it before, and again, it's just that thing of, you know, if you're kind of forcing links or something like that, it, it just ends up just really bad. And I think it just takes time to understand the material in a way and to understand what your relationship is to it. And that's deep work then, you know what I mean? You're having to just go in to stuff and... In order to do that, I mean, you have to be feeling quite strong and quite protected and quite safe and all those sorts of things. And it's and that's what I'm experiencing again as I go into, you know, creating something towards another book. Because I, I suppose I do draw on and use a lot of material that's already there. It's not like I'm starting from scratch. You know, I'm not sitting down and writing one day and off we go kind of thing. But looking through, um, and I write by hand when I'm not, you know, putting a novel together, I write by hand. And even when I'm doing the novel, you know, I go back to paper because um, I, I guess that's just always the way that I, I would have done it. You know what I mean? So that feels like writing to me. So it's, yeah, it's looking at, at notebooks and the notebooks are, and I have to look in all of them because I'm really you know, haphazard again, I, I might write a bit about a certain thing in one and then it'll be about an essay I'm working on and then it'll be an outline for a letter. So, oh, just in the same notebook. It doesn't make any sense. I need to separate, but I don't. I keep saying, have one for that project and one for another project. And then, but then when you're in bed and you only have one next. And um, so I have to go through them then because then historically I've got, I've got loads of these things. Now, I have started kind of labelling them a bit and things, which is kind of useful, but then I do it, it's a bit cryptic. So I've just come across something that is just so depressing. Like, I've obviously written something when I'm not feeling great or... And I've spent quite a lot of my life not feeling that great. <laughs> it's like, you can only do that for so long. <laughs> like, I started doing it the other day and I'd done it for about two hours and I was like, I don't, I'm, I'm going to put a film on. <laughs> handle this anymore what's wrong with me I'm just always depressed um and I I did speak to a friend about it and he said no you're not always depressed that's not true at all but maybe when you are you do have a tendency maybe to reach for the for the pen you know he said at least you do that you know I said yeah but then when I go over and I'm looking through for stuff you know I I just keep encountering this and it, it is yeah it can be quite difficult I've thought that in the writing that I've done about Sylvia Plath Mm -hmm. And looking at her diaries and letters mm. and the darkness that's there sometimes. But thinking about my own life, exactly what you say, it is sometimes when we're feeling dark. Yeah. That that's when we reach to try and express it. So you don't know if that was actually the balance yeah. of somebody's life. You don't really, do you? No, because I suppose when you're doing okay, you're just getting on with stuff and and whatever and... 
But I think as well, it's and it's to do with time, isn't it? And I think that's one of the things that prompted me maybe to, to write this because I reached an age then when my life no longer felt all of a piece. I had a definite sense of having a past and feeling that my life wasn't necessarily so connected with it, with those things that had gone on before, you know? Um, there wasn't that continuum there anymore. And that was interesting. And it made me think about things in a way that um, was, it, it, that, that would give me more distance, more compassion or something like that. And speaking of that distance, do you have a first reader? How do you know when something's ready to go out in the world a little? Yeah, and actually, my first reader was um, my agent. And I, d I don't know whether that's such a good idea. And then the second was, was my editor. And then that was it. And then it meant that really I only got feedback when it had pretty much gone into proof and then by that time it was like well it's a done deal now really and I don't know whether that was such a smart way of doing it necessarily I just in terms of I don't share my work with um and I I'm you know pretty friendly with quite a few writers but I don't look at their work well sometimes they might have asked me and but then I'm bad and I don't I don't do it really and um I, yeah it's not, it's not something I've got into because I, I do feel that I know what it is I want to do, really. And if there's something not working, I'm the only one who can figure out, like, why. And I do know I, when something's not any good. And that's why there wasn't anything for five years. That's not to say that there wasn't any writing, because there was. There was a lot of writing. I want to turn now to asking you a little bit about the reception of your work. How important is the way your work is received to you? Do you care what others think? Do you read reviews? I do, actually. I do read reviews. Um, yeah, it is important, really, because, you know, you spend all that time on it. And I, I do get to a point where, obviously, I'm thinking about the reader. Because if I wasn't, I would just, I don't know transcribe my insane haphazard notebooks and say well there you are get on with that you know what I mean so I am trying to create a reading experience definitely I'm bringing the reader into something I'm thinking about how I'm moving them through different ideas memories thoughts anecdotes sensations emotions like this whole lovely mad experience I'm really thinking about I'm thinking about all of that you know Actually, I do get quite hurt when I come across um, reviews. These are just like reviews on Amazon and stuff, which I really shouldn't read. I do not look at Goodreads, but I sometimes look at Amazon. I'm obviously comparing myself to. But there, it, there does seem to be maybe a kind of, um, I guess, a resistance to just even the format of, of the kind of writing that I produce, like longer sentences, no paragraph breaks, those kinds of things, like particularly in this age of, you know, kind of short, pithy kind of tweets and so on. Like, I just think people just don't have the patience for... So I lose people kind of immediately just on that front, never mind what I'm saying, like... But the people that you don't lose, are there specific, perhaps positive responses, maybe even from individual readers that have meant something to you? Oh, yeah, many. Yeah, many. And I've received some really nice letters. And it does make me feel like what I'm doing is is worthwhile. Because, of course, sometimes then you do wonder 
particularly if people are saying, oh, God, this is just self-absorbed rambling. So then when you, there's a sense that it has got through and it has meant something to to somebody. And that those somebodies can be quite different as well, you know. I don't have like a, a typical reader necessarily. I think it's just one of those things that you either sort of connect with its frequency or you just don't, you know, it's just not, it's not your bag at all. And that's fine. I mean, as far as reviews go, it's a kind of a funny one. Because we talk about good reviews and bad reviews. But see, you can get what's, you know, a good review. But I've read good reviews and I've not been best pleased with them. Because they can be unperceptive. They can be unperceptive. Yeah, and they can kind of just sort of gloss over stuff and sort of provide then this sort of idea of it, which doesn't really bear any sort of resemblance. It can be quite thin or something. I think the critical culture in America is amazing. I guess there's just maybe a bigger readership, so therefore more money to pay contributors and they can spend more time. I mean, having written for some American um, publications, I kind of know that to be so. But it does mean that there is like incredible... You know, essays, they're not really reviews, they're, they're essays. It's almost like, okay, we know this is worthy of our attention. Now let's find out why. Why? Late last year, the French author Annie Ernaux, whose mention, of course, in Checkout 19, was awarded the Nobel Prize in literature. It must be marvelous to share a publisher. Pond was published by Fitzcarraldo, her English language publisher. Absolutely. I, I have great admiration. And not just admiration, there's just something about her prose that just really gets under my skin and the way that she deals with um, memory. Um, I recently read the most recent one, Getting Lost, uh, about the affair, um, which is also described in Simple Passion. But this is, yeah, a different way of approaching it. It's the journals that she kept kind of while it was going on. It's it's incredibly uh, powerful. The precision of her observation and her willing to be ruthless with herself to and, me is so striking. And I and the willingness to be sort of I don't know, kind of banal as well, and not and not try and poeticize, you know, because it does it does become quite you know repetitive, and and there's something even she you know she says she knows it's kind of almost shameful in the way she's kind of carrying on, and it just reduces her, you know. There's just something about about that um resist resisting kind of making it into some kind of poetic or i mean like one of, i suppose i'm thinking of by by a comparison then is is as i sat down on grand central station and wept by elizabeth smart which takes a completely different approach because she's throwing all the poetic you know tropes and images that we can possibly associate with passion and and longing and all the rest of it and it's just not a book I particularly enjoy and yet I love Elizabeth Smart's journals and I I wrote an essay about the relationship or lack of relationship between the journals and the novel and how I wished actually that there was more of her journalistic writing in the novel and why did she feel she needed to literaturize the experience you know and, and elevate it in some way or to make it more I don't know important or worthy of our attention whereas uh, Arnaud doesn't doesn't do that she doesn't doesn't reach for those uh, embellishments and yeah completely gets under your skin and and you because it includes you you know because it could be you it is you yes. you know we've almost come to the end of our wonderful conversation. 
I am going to close with a few brief questions that we ask everyone. And I will start by asking you, what is the most surprising thing you've learned from being a writer? I guess sort of the conservatism, really. Um, <laughs> because the, the before lasted a long time. Right? Being the um, an unpublished writer was, you know, a good, I don't know, 20 years, 25 years. So that was quite a long time to build up possibly quite wild and romantic ideas of the literary world. Yeah, I didn't really like that. Sticking <laughs> to the theme of surprise, what would people be surprised to learn about you? I'm, I'm really, I'm quite a silly person. <laughs> in me, in, a, in many ways. That. I like that. What advice would you give to anyone who wants to express their creativity? Well, I, I'm sure that they already are, you know. I remember when I was teaching just briefly um, a few years ago, we were doing um, creative writing for performance. Um, performance, not theatre specifically, because we were kind of doing outside things and all kinds of stuff. It was, it was, yeah, it was cool. And at the beginning of the semester, the opening seminar, I did the usual thing where I got to know who they were and what their expectations were and that kind of stuff. And nearly all of them, you know, they're sat there kind of hunched in and their little voices are all still kind of caught up in their throats and they're thinking, oh God, it's going to be my turn next. And so many of them would say, oh, I don't really know why I'm here because I'm not really a creative person. And I'd say, but look at you. Like, you look amazing. Like, your hair or whatever, your outfit. Like, the minute, the minute you get up, you're making decisions creative decisions like as you move through the day it's an expression so just maybe pull back from ideas about you know what creativity is is and what being artistic is and all that like stop seeing it as something over there that's sort of something that you've got to kind of you know get to by very Climb i don't know to. intellectual means or something it's you have it it's there and we're just going to work out other ways of I don't know manifesting it or exploring it or whatever you know don't just don't get into a pickle about it too much you know? how would you like to be remembered as a writer to be remembered that means the future doesn't it and I cannot think about the future at all I I'm very pessimistic I'm insanely pessimistic I cannot conceive really of a future where I am going to be in any way relevant I can barely conceive of a future where any books are going to be in any way relevant. Well, I think they will. <laughs> and we're going to take us just a, a little bit into the future again for our final question. So your next book, what do you hope for from it? How would you want it to be? It's weird. <laughs> I have a really weird image at the moment. I don't know why when I think of it. And it's just this odd rock like stone thing on the ground I think it's a bit like a Louise Bourgeois sculpture maybe or maybe I'm just trying to make it sound good that's the that is such a weird image with Pond it was um like a, a series of doors freestanding in a clearing in a forest but they all had different kinds of doorknobs 
and they were like one they were one after another kind of thing and you walk through one but then you just thought there was another one but they were completely freestanding and then with um checkout 19 that was more of a sort of a pyramid and for ages i just thought it had five chapters which was just ridiculous because it has way more than five and then i counted them and i thought how did you why that doesn't make sense to think there are five of course there's more than five i don't know how many there are there might be seven but I, it's yeah, shape. Some sort of sense of shape or form or something is obviously something that's quite important to me when I'm thinking about maybe the nature of it. The thing with the rock thing is it there is a kind of a scroll or a spiral which is very bourgeois. So I think maybe the spiral is something then that's um, key there. <laughs> well, we will wait to discover. Thank you so much. Claire Louise Bennett for joining us on the Rendezvous Literaire podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I can't wait to read the next book, Rock or Not, when it comes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Erica. I've had a fantastic day. It's been fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon podcast. To discover more about it, you will find images, links, and references on the Chanel website. À bientôt!